Remember the story of the Grinch who stole Christmas, one of Dr. Seuss's most famous tales. Movies have been made about it. In fact, a new one came out this year. If you'll remember the Grinch, he lives just north of Whoville. And where the Grinch lives, he can hear and see what's happening in Whoville. And in Whoville, they celebrate Christmas. Every yard is decked out. The city is decorated. He can see all of this Christmas cheer, and it drives him crazy. He hates the noise of the toys. The sounds of the Christmas carols infuriate him. So the Grinch comes up with a plan, a plan to stop Christmas. On Christmas Eve night, he sneaks into the house of every who down in Whoville, and he takes the toys, he takes the food, he takes the decorations, everything, he takes it all. Well, as morning comes, the Grinch makes it back to his lair, his sleigh filled with all of this food and all of these decorations, and he has certain he has stolen all of the Christmas things, but not just that. He's certain he has stolen the joy of Christmas. But as the morning arrives before long, he began to hear a sound coming from Whoville. It was the sound of Christmas songs that they were caroling. The songs, Dr. Seuss notes, were merry, very, in fact. And he couldn't understand why. Why would they still be singing? We're going to stop there, but before we finish today, we'll return to the, to the Grinch's story. Why was Christmas a celebration in Whoville? And why is it a celebration here? What does Christmas mean to you? As we think about Christmas together, we're going to go back to the earliest days of time. We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 3. I'd invite you to take a pew Bible if you like and, and turn to page 3. The first human couple, Adam and Eve, found themselves in a beautiful, lush garden. It was splendid in every way. Now, God had instructed Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But otherwise, this free couple this couple was free, pardon me, to delight in all of the beauties of the garden. In a sense, the garden was their wonderland. Amazing food, incredible scenery. And then, then the serpent, the serpent approached Eve. He promised her all of these lies and, and he promised her that God was holding out on her. Told her that God was holding out on her and he urged her to reject God, the serpent told Eve, you tell God to shove it. You tell God you're going to do what you want to do. After all, the serpent promised her that she'd be far better off. Next thing you know, Eve had taken of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Her husband, he was right beside her. And he didn't try to protect her from the schemes of, of the evil one. Instead, he followed right behind his wife and he took the very next bite. Well, with those first tastes, of that forbidden fruit, dark clouds were on the horizon. Now the joys of the garden would be long gone for this couple. Instead, they, like us, would live in a broken world, a world that's filled with sin and suffering. So after this occurs, God comes to the garden. And Adam and Eve see that God is in the garden, and they run to hide. A futile attempt, of course. God calls out for Adam in his mercy. 
And he begins to question Adam and, and then Eve. And eventually they come clean. They admit that they had rejected God's instruction. They had done what they wanted to do. And next, God pronounces judgment for this act of rebellion. Because they had rebelled against him as the rightful creator of the universe. And so God pronounces a judgment. Let's look at this judgment in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Well, in verse 14, God judges the serpent. The serpent would slither on the ground. Perhaps prior to this act of rebellion, uh, the serpent may have had a different bodily form. We're, We're not certain. To eat dust suggests total defeat, complete humiliation. God's judgment isn't really against the reptile, of course, but what the reptile symbolizes. In verse 15, God addresses Satan more directly. Now, remember that Satan had been one of God's angels. But Satan had led a rebellion because he wanted to take the place of God. So here in verse 15, God tells Satan that he will put hostility between Satan and the woman. Now, Satan already hated Eve. That's why he tempted her, because he wanted her to experience the pain and the agony that sin brought, the kind of pain and agony that he knew. But what God did here was cause the woman to see that the reality of her sin brought pain. So this is God's mercy. He helped the woman recognize that when she followed the ways of Satan, the results were were bad. Yet again, another mercy of God to help people understand that their sin brings heartache and pain. So Eve and her true offspring will see the horrors of sin. That's what's said here. As one commentator put it, we would like to go to hell happy. But God does not allow that to happen. God makes sin miserable and sets up antagonism between ourselves and Satan that modifies the hold of sin and makes it possible to hear God's loving voice even in our misery. So this hostility won't merely be between Eve and Satan, but also between their offspring. The Hebrew word that's translated as offspring or seed is like the English word deer or sheep. It can be singular or it can refer to a group. Of course, the seed of the woman refers to those who would know God and and follow him. And the seed of Satan likely refers to those people who would follow after the devil and his wicked ways. Next, God offers a veiled promise in this curse against the devil. This veiled promise is regarding the offspring of the woman. and, And God says that the woman's offspring are going to strike Satan's head and that Satan would strike his heel. What does this mean? Well, Satan would inflict great harm to the woman's offspring. He would strike his heel. And yet the woman's offspring would offer a mortal blow to Satan. He would strike his head. Now, when these words were were first written down, this promise surely wasn't fully understood. There would be a cosmic ongoing battle between good and evil. That was clear. But eventually Satan would be mortally wounded by this woman's offspring, but who was her offspring? 
While the Old Testament saints couldn't answer this question in full, we are blessed with a greater knowledge. Who is the one who will strike the head of the devil? Well, we know who it is. It is the Lord Jesus himself. And my friends, this is the very first promise of Christmas in the Bible, right here in Genesis chapter 3. You see, at the beginning of time, God in his mercy promised that first Christmas morning, the Son of God would leave the glories and the majesty of heaven, and he would be born as a little baby boy. He would grow up just like we grow up. Eventually, he would become a man, and he would be like us, fully human, but unlike us, and that he never sinned. He would be nailed to the cross, and he would die. And at the cross, we see a partial fulfillment of the words that we read in Genesis 3.15. For Satan had surely struck the heel of Jesus at the cross. Jesus was down, but friend, friends, Jesus wasn't out. Jesus was dead, but he wouldn't stay dead. No, Jesus would rise from the dead. He would come back to life. And one day in the future, Jesus is going to end all of the scheming and plotting and planning of this serpent and his minions once and for all. You can read more about that in Revelation 19 and 20. Indeed, Jesus will strike Satan's head. And it will be a mortal blow. And evil will be over once and for all. It'll be a glorious day. And Christmas reminds us that this end point is in view for the devil and his demons. As we reflect on this verse, we see that we can experience this Christmas promise firsthand. We can experience this Christmas promise firsthand. You can know the one who was promised at the beginning of time, the one who came to redeem. At a church's annual Christmas play, all the kids had been practicing and they'd been putting together the parts. The splendor of the baby Jesus was going to be highlighted at the Christmas play by turning off all the lights in the church. And they had placed a light inside of the manger. And they were going to make sure that at this particular point in the play, that was the only light that was illumined. And so you can imagine, uh, rarely do Christmas plays turn out exactly as you plan. They're in the midst of the play, and the lights go out. It's just the right time, and the light in the manger is supposed to go on, but it doesn't. That light was turned off with all of the rest. So all the kids on stage were a little tense because they knew that the light in the manger was supposed to be shining. And finally, one of the shepherd boys spoke up, and he whispered to the boy who was running the lights, You turned off Jesus. <laughs> and you know what? That's exactly what many of us will do in our hearts today. We will have heard about the glories of a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to this earth to die on a cross for our sins. We will hear about how he gave his life, but we will walk out and we will not let it mean he'll have been to us. We too will have made the same mistake, but the cost will be far greater. We will have turned off Jesus. We will have said to Jesus, I'll do what I please. And it's a tragic, tragic place to be. Let's reflect on this verse and what it means more directly in our lives. We need to ask ourselves this question. Is Jesus your friend? Because that's what this Christmas promise means. Is Jesus your friend? Do you know him? Do you walk with him closely? Or is he more like a Christmas decoration to you? 
God made this first Christmas promise to Adam and Eve so that we could know Jesus as a friend, a close friend. He's not meant to be a mere acquaintance. He's not meant to be a person of interest. And he's certainly not meant to be a Christmas decoration. He is meant to be our Savior and the best of friends. You see, Jesus can be your friend when you place your faith in him. When you say to God, God, I'm tired of going my own way. I'm tired of doing things the way I want to do them. I'm turning from my sin. And I believe Jesus came to this earth, died on a cross, was buried, and rose again. Forgive me for my sins. I want to follow you. And when you cry out to to God like that, and you mean it, when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus saves you and that he never, ever lets you go. That he can be your best friend. And you can know personally the joy of this first Christmas promise. We began with the Grinch, and so let's return to his story. When the Grinch realized that stealing all of the toys and the gifts and the lights and the food, well, that didn't keep the Who's from celebrating Christmas. The Grinch thought to himself, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And friends, Christmas doesn't just mean a little bit more. It means a whole lot more. More than friends and family, more than fun and food, Christmas reminds us of a promise that was made at the beginning of time, the promise of a redeemer. And so we conclude where we started. What does Christmas mean to you? Or to put it another way, do you know the Lord Jesus, the one we celebrate the one we, who, who came that, that we might be saved this morning. Won't you experience the wonderful joy of knowing the Christmas promise that God made so long ago firsthand? Won't you put your faith in the Lord Jesus? Join me in prayer.